You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. I'm Andre Prue from andrewinereview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus from michaelpincuswinereview.com. Now, we had a chance to sit down with Cyril Brun. Yes. Want to give, it, want to give his name a shot? Cyril Brun. Okay, that's pretty good. Thank you very much. He is the chef de cave for Charles Heitzig Champagne. And he was fantastic. He really was. And so were the wines. Yes. But he was just fantastic to talk to, full of knowledge, obviously. And he has such a history in champagne that it is amazing. It is amazing. And it's, it's interesting to hear him talk a little bit about his family history. But you're going to hear a little bit later on because a lot of people talk about uh, climate change and champagne. And we get a really interesting answer and discussion from him about that. So, uh, without further ado, here's uh, Cyril Brun from uh, Charles Heitzig. Cyril Brun. Oh, damn it. I knew I'd screw that up. So, here we are with Cyril Brun from uh, Charles Heitzig. Um, Chef de cave, is that not what you are? That's correct, Michael. And uh, obviously we have uh, my co-host Andre Prue with us. Hello. And uh, I just sat through a very nice tasting of uh, two Charles wines uh, with you. Uh, Andre missed them, so he's probably uh, going to try and catch up now with a couple of sifts, sniffs and sips of something. So why don't we have, uh, Cyril, why don't we have you tell us your, your history? As you were telling some really interesting stuff about how you started with Charles and your past. So, uh, starting from the beginning, so I was uh, born and uh, raised in Champagne. Uh, so my father, grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, they were involved in uh, winemaking and, and vineyards management. So I never really imagined doing another kind of career. Um, so I went to university in Reims to study oenology uh, and viticulture. And yet, uh, when I was graduated, I went to Bordeaux for my first uh, winemaking experience, which I enjoyed quite a lot. Uh, so coming back to uh, the uh, family lands of Champagne, I worked with my family for some years. And yet, after those years of experience, I've, I really considered it was uh, the right time to uh, try to work for uh, larger companies. Uh, the beauty of large companies is you get access to more resources, especially when making wines and making wines in Champagne. The beauty of Champagne is the complexity of the blending. So you, there is a level of complexity you can only reach when uh, working for kind of larger companies. Now, had you, um, I know you talked a little bit about growing up in Champagne and not imagining another career. Has your family been involved in the wine business for for previous generations? Yes, for uh, all together we have been uh, involved in the champagne business for four generations, So, which means it's uh, uh, something you, we have in our blood, in our genes. Uh, I got two boys and I hope that one of the two will have the envy of uh, keeping on the, the same cape, I hope. Is it important in, in France to keep the family tradition going? Yes, I think it's, it's part of uh, what you want to uh, give to the next generations. I've inherited uh, some things from uh, my previous generations. I want to pass it to the next one as well. Now, you, uh, you had also mentioned during, during the tasting that you would work for another company in Bordeaux. Yes. Maybe you'd like to expand on how you ended up at Charles and working in the wine. Yes, of course. Uh, since I, I had in my vision... Uh, to make my career at Charles Hissig in Champagne, uh, I said if I had to uh, to start, 
I want to be able to uh, discover another angle of vision of winemaking. That's the reason why I, I decided to go to Bordeaux as a first experience. And uh, I was quite lucky to be able to join the uh, Chateau Aubryon. Uh, in the <laughs> early 90s, it could be a, a much worse uh, way of starting. And it was quite a luck and a privilege to work. Uh, I worked there for uh, nine months altogether. It was quite a dream. And uh, when coming back to, to Champagne, of course, everybody looking at uh, that line on my uh, resume was quite impressed. And uh, when I um, applied uh, in my two favorite wineries that were uh, Verflico and Charlitzik in 99, uh, people that were looking at my resume and said, wow, quite impressive which was, uh, in, in fact, not so impressive. I was a trainee. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell them that part. Yes, of course. Well, I, I think it's interesting, though, uh, because you talked about how important blending is for making champagne, and I think that's something a lot of people don't necessarily think about because when we talk about making champagne, a lot of focus is put on that secondary fermentation where you put the bottle on the side and boom, you've got bubbles, and not a lot of attention is paid to what goes into making the base wine. Uh, how did your experience in Bordeaux translate over to Champagne? And maybe tell us a little bit about talking to someone who knows nothing about it, what it's like to blend wine and Champagne and what, you're, what you do. The thing is that people should never forget that uh, you cannot make good wines from bad grapes. And what you are going to bottle uh, when bottling the, your blend needs to be uh, at the top of what you can expect to, to do. And you should not uh, expect any major gain after that stage of bottling. Of course, the wine is going to develop, but there will, there will not be any uh, development that was not already in the bottle uh, when bottling. Uh, that's why in Champagne, it's a true uh, expertise and uh, art of blending that really select and uh, really very precisely uh, organize the the marriage of the different components together to really uh, get the, the perfect synergies between all the different components. And in a larger winery, you can get access to more complexity, to more diversity of resources, which is going to clearly elevate uh, the complexity of your plant. Now, you had, you had talked about you had uh, this dream of working for Charles Orville. Yes, it's true. And you worked for whom before Charles? Uh, actually, I, I had a dream to work for those two wineries because they were kind of very iconic wineries. I love the wines of, uh, of those two uh, different makers. Um, Charles was uh, really had a very special place within my family because it kind of, we are, we are in Champagne, we are drinking Champagne like almost like every day. So you can put it that way. Chalcic was the bottle of the Sunday. It was a little bit more special treatment when talking about Charles. So when uh, starting a career, I applied for a job in the two wineries. I did the interviews in the two wineries, meeting the solo master at that time. And finally, I got a very quick answer from uh, Berflico. So I had no idea if Chalcic would have a chance to uh, enroll me because they, they have he didn't have even a chance to, to answer to, to uh, my, my job proposition. So what exactly is your job as chef de cave? Uh, the, the chef de cave is really the one that is responsible for uh, creating and making, making the wines, so which means I'm testing all different tanks in the winery and just uh, finding exactly what would be the, the best proportion of each different tanks 
to set up the identity of the wines uh, of the winery. Uh, but it starts from uh, uh, the very beginning, so from the vineyards. So you have uh, to check and monitor uh, what is the grapes like, and uh, you need to really follow the entire evolution of the products uh, from the bottling to the edging just before the, the final releasing. So we've talked wine, now we want to talk about the wine. So uh, we have two wines here today, and which one would you like to start off with talking about? For sure, I would start with the, uh, the, the Rosé Reserve, which is really uh, the one I like to, to start with. It's just opening uh, your, your, your mood for the tasting. It's very uh, fruit-driven, it's uh, rich, but yet it has really uh, the essence of capturing the freshness and fruitiness. And this is the Rosé Reserve. That's right? the Rosé Reserve. So we just had you support, so Andre and I have been enjoying while you were talking. Yeah. The, 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 which the, is why I know, haven't heard a word you said. <laughs> I know this is a podcast, and this is a podcast, but for anyone who hasn't seen what this wine looks like, it's like... It looks like a penny in the glass. It's exactly like copper colored. Yeah, it's got like a coppery, peachy pink type uh, like color to it. It's very pretty and, and, and neat looking. So but, but I'm actually surprised about these uh, these glasses. They they really like. I'm getting a lot of red fruit off of the uh, the nose on this. I know with with champagne, often when you're getting a rosé, the red fruit can be a little more subtle. This is a little bit more. Pushing forward, I really like Actually, that. Actually, as it warm as, as it has warmed up since we opened it, it has yes. really popped. From exactly. The fruit, so it's interesting. I really like what uh, just Andre said because uh, I don't like to uh, drink champagne in uh, champagne glasses. Uh, for most of them, they don't really uh, offer the right experience, especially for champagne of that level of complexity. And I would always prefer to serve uh, those champagne in like a. Burgundy style uh, glassware rather than their crappy champagne. <laughs> so these are, these actually, I guess I'll describe them, and I'd love you to expand a little bit more on that because I also love that we're seeing the death of the champagne flute. But these are almost like mini Bordeaux, sorry, mini Burgundy style yes, exactly. glasses. They're, they're a little soft. bit smaller. They've got a nice. They're kind of an upside down teardrop. They're an upside down teardrop, and I mean yeah. the shape is almost like perfectly round. Like it's about the size of a tennis ball with the top. 20% cut, cut off at the yeah. open yeah, and exactly. pointed out at the bottom. Yeah. The thing is that in many cases, people are really obsessed by the uh, vision of effervescence. So the people, they, they expect to have a, a jazzer in their glasses, mm -hmm. uh, which is, we not bring uh, quite a, a full experience about what is champagne. In that, with that glassware, we know that we will have a kind of uh, a lower uh, expression of the effervescence, but you will have a much better, much deeper concentration of the flavors and aromas. This is, uh, so this is, I find very interesting because it is, it is now drinking, it's been in the glass uh, for 20 minutes, I'm going to say, mm -hmm. and it is, it is drinking more like a wine than it is like a sparkling wine. Of the course. bubbles seem almost to have disappeared. Yes. But they're still there. Like they're still very, very subtly though. I find. I find this is drinking more like a like a, a wine, but but in that champagne style, still with that yeastiness, yep. still with that some little bit of weight here. Yeah, the the mid mouth feel. Sorry to interrupt. The mid mouth feel is just really nice. It's got a little bit of creaminess that holds on yep. to the back, and it just also helps that red fruit just pop on it too. But I feel like you should not judge the the bubbles uh, using your sense of sight. You should. Um, the best tool would be probably your palate and testing uh, and assessing the, the, the quality and the size of the bubbles. Your best tool is clearly the palate, because uh, 
from the from your sense of sight, it might be uh, distorted by the type of glassware you use. And yet, uh, the palette is, is by far the best tool. So briefly, uh, you were telling uh, uh, the the room how this wine is made and and its age. Although it is a non-vintage rosé reserve. Yep. So it's rosé, so which means it's made by blending uh, red wines in one hand with uh, white wines in the other hand. So yet we are going to use 5% of red uh, steel uh, Pinot Noir to be uh, added at the top of an existing white base. Uh, so for the white base we are going to use the three varietals of Champagne. So we are going to use Pinot Noir and Meunier, the two black varietals, and the, the, the last one will be of course the, the Chardonnay. So then will, there will be like two fractions of wines. There will be the kind of uh, young wines and the reserve wines. Uh, yet it's a 08 non-vintage base, so we are going to have 80% of uh, wines from the harvest 2008 as the fresh uh, fraction of wines, and 20% of reserve wines. And those reserve wines are uh, five years as an average. So the idea is we need to get a bit more texture, a bit more complexity. And just definitely has that. Oh, it is. Really, really like that. So before we move on to wine number two, I'd like a little bit of history uh, about the Charles Heitzig winery. People have heard of Heitzig. Obviously, the name is quite famous in Champagne. People have heard of Piper Heitzig, obviously. They've heard of Heitzig Monopole. And Charles Heitzig just seems to be the trifecta of Champagne. So where does Charles fit into the whole Heitzig name? So as you mentioned, Heitzig was a very uh, famous name, very famous family, uh, the uh, very oldest uh, branch is uh, the Piper Heitzig, which, which has been uh, created in 1785. Uh, then uh, you have also Heitzig uh, Monopole, which came in the middle of the, the 19th century. And uh, the new one, the kind of uh, younger member of the Heitzig family uh, branch to create a winery was uh, Charles Camille Heitzig, founding Charles Heitzig in 1851. It was, it was related to the Piper branch, uh, but yet he was not like so uh, recognizing himself uh, working for Piper, uh, I'd say, because he, he had the vision of making a champagne that would be deeper, uh, probably much more closer to what could be a vision of a wine at that time. And the other idea was he wanted to conquer uh, North America when everybody at that time was trying to conquer uh, Russia and uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Very interesting. Well, and I, I was reading something today about Champagne Charlie, right? That uh, Charles Heidsick was one of the first in North America to break that market, right? He was a, he was a true pioneer, just bringing champagne into North America, and he was been it has been nicknamed Champagne Charlie because he traveled after uh, the, the winery was created, and he became a, a legend uh, at that time, and he had a quite a very chaotic uh, uh, history uh, during his different stays in the states since he was uh, very close to uh, people from the, from the north during the Civil War. He was uh, concer- considered to be uh, a spy by the people from the south, and he has been jailed in Louisiana for, for some years. And just thanks to a letter, he wrote to his wife, and uh, his wife wrote a letter to someone called Abraham Lincoln that Charles Kamietzik had met several times uh, when on the northeast of, of, uh, of the USA. He uh, managed to be uh, uh, freed from from jails, 
and the states they really uh, recognized they had made a mistake and uh, they offered to Charles Kamietzik uh, the ownership of one third of the city of Denver at that time. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess um I guess we can move on to the other wine. That's a great story though. Yeah. So uh, this is the uh, Reserve Brut, if I'm not mistaken, yes. Yes, so exactly. It is, it exactly. is a white wine, for lack of a better descriptor. Yes, and what is impressive, just looking at the wine, is uh, you have kind of a deep gold color, uh, and it's quite unique and special at Charles because uh, that's the result of the combination of two effects. We are uh, aging the wines much, much longer than most of the uh, makers uh, in Champagne. It's a 08 non-vintage base, so which means that the wine is now uh, close to uh, eight years old. And yet in that uh, Brut Reserve, you have a significant fraction of reserve wines, up to 40% of reserve wines. And those reserve wines are very old compared to the, uh, the Rosé Reserve. Uh, the reserve we use uh, to, to be blending in that champagne are 10 years old as an average. So which means it's going to really bring a lot of depth, a lot of texture, a lot of complexity to the wines. And yet the idea is to combine the beauty of both champagne on the fresh side and champagne on the mature side at the same time. So it, it is really interesting. Like the nose is so big and like almost heavy. It's just got this nice, like, it's the smell of... Like it feels like that smell when you walk by a subway and they're baking the bread, you know. It's just a really oh, not fresh. Oh, subway. Okay, I thought you meant. No, 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 no. That's not complimentary. Like, 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 you know, you know how when you walk when you walk by a subway, it's just the best smell in the sandwich world, and it's that shop. smell. Yeah, sandwich, sandwich shop. shop. But it's the smell of that like rising bread as you as you're going by, and it's just this. Just it feels like that because it's just so heavy when yeah, there's a little toastiness in here, yeah. maybe a little nuttiness, probably from the older wines for exactly. sure. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, really beautiful, and the, and the acidity is still still wonderful. Now, Andre, I know this should be your question, but uh, a lot of people don't realize that you know they drink when they drink champagne, it's all about you know just you know having a glass of champagne, but. Champagne is such a wonderful food pairing wine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Cyril, I'd love to ask you, what are your favorite pairings with either one or both of these wines? Yep. So, as you can imagine, I, I, I just told it, in Champagne, we drink Champagne almost like every day. It's okay. So, we have experienced Champagne with like any type of pairings. Uh, because uh, we we choose the champagne and then we tend to cook accordingly and that's what uh, is quite different because uh, we can really imagine that this champagne because of the way it's made it's uh, it's made from different varietals it's made from uh, wines from different years so you are going to just uh, gain a lot of complexity by involving a lot of different components so as a result it will have a very wide a spectrum of uh, of pairing uh, potential. I like to go for mostly like seafood, but some some seafood with with texture, something crunchy, something a bit fatty, because you need to really have the same echo that the one you have into the wine. So you've just given me a carte blanche to to drink champagne with fish and chips. Uh, it could be one. Oh, yes, that'd I'm be in. great. I'm in. Yes. It's right. funny. It's funny though. My my brain was going straight to like lobster and crab and. Things like that, well, a little bit of texture crunchy, to so it. I need a, I need a, a, I need that crunch from the fish and chips. Hey, you can deep fry lobster tail. 
now we're getting high. Um, here's a question for this a little, a little bit interesting. I mean, one thing, like I said, we don't often think about the blends, um, the, the, the blending process for champagne. We think more of the, the process. But uh, I know we've just finished harvest, or you should it be finished or very close to finished harvest. How was uh, 2016 as a vintage? Uh, for sure, it was uh, a small quantity vintage. Uh, we are down by about 30% compared to a, a normal quantity uh, vintage. But uh, it's it's very very early to um, to say, but I'm quite optimistic. I'm going to put it that way. Uh, if you compare what I've tasted, the ten percent best ones from last year and the ten percent best one from this year, I tend to be uh, more happy with the ones of this year rather than 2015. So I'm pretty optimistic about the, the potential of quality of uh, the current harvest. Now for the the future of champagne, I know a lot of people. When they talk about the effects of global warming on the wine industry, they point to champagne. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about the future of winemaking and champagne? Uh, I think global warming is not the, the, the proper way to put it. I think we have, uh, I would say we have had more chaos, more uh, um, disease, more rain, and the, 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 the climate has become more and more uh, hazardous, uh, if I can put it that way. Because we, we have not really noticed a dramatic uh, global warming, but we feel like that we, we, uh, we need to gain a bit more precision for the future because we should be able to adapt and to be more flexible uh, because the climate is going to be uh, with more dramatic change than just global warming. Now in Burgundy this year they had frost and hail. Did they not? Yes. They had both. Did you did you have that as well? We have had frost uh, in the spring. Uh, we have had hail in some places. In some places, some uh, grapes have been uh, burnt uh, during the heat wave we had in the summer. And in some cases, we have just had the tree together. So uh, in in some different specific spots of Champagne, uh, the the yield was divided by ten. So a lot of people always want to know how much acreage or hectareage uh, is owned by a winery. In Champagne, it's quite different. You don't actually own a lot of hectares. Yeah. You actually source grapes from how many different places and how many different how much hectares do you own? So currently, we are sourcing uh, the fruits we need from about fifty different villages uh, wow. in, in total. And uh, we own uh, vineyards in about uh, seven different villages uh, among the, the 50. Uh, and once more, the, the Charles Camillettic choice at the beginning was really to purchase some, uh, uh, some choke pits, some cellar, rather to purchase uh, some vineyards at that time. And uh, if you come back to what was the, the history of Champagne at that time, it was the kind of pre-Philoxera uh, crisis. So at that time, he was a visionary not to buy vineyards, otherwise he might uh, go to bankruptcy. Interesting. And you source grapes from how many different growers? Altogether, we source the grapes from about 180 different uh, families, it's because in some cases we have had the connection with the family for, uh, from the grandfather, the father, and yet now the, the son. That's interesting. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, that's it. I'm just trying to find a way to get onto a high note because, I mean, in spite of all the talking about the big picture stuff and the tough year in in, in Champagne, these wines are really, well, really high, quite tasty. The high note is, is what's in the glass. Yeah, this, is, this was the high note for me. It's from the rosé to the uh, to the brut reserve. I like the brut reserve. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> what's the percentage of Chardonnay in the brut reserve? In the brut reserve, <laughs> uh, you are going to have. Uh, for the fraction of uh, fresh wines, you are going to have one third of each varietal. Okay. So uh, it's going to be uh, uh, 60% of fresh wines, so 20% of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Meunier. And for the 40% of reserve wines, it's going to be half Pinot Noir and half Chardonnay. That's so, in, so in total, you will have 40% Chardonnay, 40% Pinot Noir, and 20% Meunier. It seems high, Meunier. Uh, you are one of the houses that have a higher percentage of Meunier? Uh, we are going to have globally 20% of Meunier, which is, uh, I suspect, to be a bit more than uh, people tend to use. Uh, but we have some Meunier from very specific zones, especially from, from uh, Verneuil and Ville d'Omange. And those uh, Meunier, they are, uh, in some cases, uh, testing more closer to Chardonnay than the Meunier. So that could be the explanation why we use uh, that amount of money. So I have a question about Pinot Meunier. Most people who are listening uh, have tried Chardonnay, so they probably have an idea of what the profile of a Chardonnay yeah. is just on its own. And there are people who obviously love Pinot Noir and they've tasted Pinot Noir and they know what that. But what does Meunier bring? The Meunier is going to be to bring this kind of very uh, instant, bright uh, uh, fruitiness, which is exactly uh, what is supposed to convey the, the Meunier. But in the case of the two villages I was just mentioning, uh, Verneuil and, and Ville d'Omange, you get something a bit more citrusy, a bit more vegetal, that just elevating the Meunier uh, at, a, at a different level. Well, Cyril, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us and going through these wines, and uh, really hope we get a chance to pick one up shortly. I mean... I think you like the rosé and I like the, the Brut Reserve, but these I, are I, special I like wines. both and uh, we have some straws <laughs> at the end of the table. We're going to finish the bottle Excellent. from that. So. Nothing better than champagne with a straw. That's what I think, too. <laughs> it turns out you don't need a proper uh, flute. You can just use whatever glass you want, and the bottle is probably the best place. Exactly. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, well, we hope you enjoyed our, our conversation with Sihuil. And uh, as always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Uh, check out our Facebook page. We don't have a thousand likes, so no naked pictures of Michael Pincus yet. Oh, man, I wish you'd stop <laughs> promoting that because that ain't going to happen anytime soon. But anyways, uh, you can find me, AndreWineReview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can find me there and on Facebook. And you can find us on Twitter. Heck, we're all over the place, it seems. Say goodnight, Michael. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.